he's presented us with some very significant statements that require a lot of the true followers of Christ. And you may recall, if you've been able to be with us over these past several months, or if you're familiar with the book of James, that James indicates that we should be steadfast in the face of suffering. He informs us of how we should act when we are suffering. He reminds us of what, how we should think about the true nature of temptation. He tells us plainly that if we only hear the word of God, but do not order our lives by the word of God, then we're claiming something that is not ours to claim. And so he lays that out very plainly and very clearly. Furthermore, as he works his way through the chapters, he says if we're being partial to people, then we're being unfaithful to God. We can talk about our faith all day long, but the proof is in the doing, not in the saying. What is claimed but isn't practiced is a sham faith, and so he hits pretty hard on that particular topic. He further instructs us that our own words are the barometer of our hearts, so what we say is a revelation of what is going on inside of us, and so a damaging tongue is a sign of a darkened heart. Godly wisdom, he insists, softens the tongue because godly wisdom cares about other people, and the evidence of a godly person is that they are both gentle and they're approachable. The godly person, he tells us, doesn't wrap themselves up in arguments and selfish ambition. They're humble in heart. They're humble in the way that they act with people, and they draw near to God. And as a result, God draws near to them. He further tells us that, that true followers of Christ don't presume on their days. They're, they are aware that their times are in God's hands. They don't trust temporary riches. They trust in the eternal God. And as a result of that, they can be patient and they can be steady and they can speak the truth. And if you, like me, have been going through this study of the book of James and you've listened to Matt after most weeks he's been speaking on this, on, from this book, there's a sense in which, and we talked about this in our life group, we talked about how James has been so faithful to point out our sins. And it's almost as if if we won't look in the mirror ourselves, then, then James is bold enough to say, look, you have some sin on your face. You need to take care of that. And one of these weeks over the past couple of months, I, I said to Matt, Matt, look, I'm not coming to church Sunday. I'm just going to go straight to conviction and confession. I don't need to hear what you're saying. I know that I'm going to be guilty of something. And it seems like every Sunday that we've shown up, we've been presented with something that I'm guilty of in one way or another. So the question is, if you have been like me over these last weeks, how is James going to get us out of this predicament that he has put us in? What is the one thing that he can give us that will pull all of these important instructions for living together? How are we going to hold up under the guilt that we have felt? What do we do now? How will we set our souls for this journey that we've started on towards Christian maturity? And it's made pretty obvious in these verses. Pray. Verse 13, the very first part says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. It's very simple. It's very clear. The instruction is simple, but it's profound. Is anyone suffering? There should be, they should pray. There's no attempt here to, to limit what the suffering is. It could be physical suffering. It could be emotional suffering. It could be spiritual suffering. What the suffering is makes no difference. 
whatever we're facing, all of us can crawl up inside of the comfort of this verse that if we find ourselves suffering, then we can and should simply pray. And, and when you read through the Bible, the Bible is full of these kinds of prayers. And it's helpful for us if we become well-versed in these prayers that are prayed in the face of adversity and in the face of suffering. If you read through the Bible, and I've picked out just a few, there are many, many more. But we find the Israelites praying when they're surrounded by the Egyptians and they see no way of escape. And so they cry out to the Lord in prayer. We hear David praying when he's being pursued by Saul. And we hear him again praying later on when he's been abandoned by his family. We hear Jonah praying from the belly of the whale as he realizes that he's been in a rebellion against God. We hear Jeremiah praying and he's lamenting the sorrow of his people. And Jesus himself prays before he goes to the cross and he prays while he is on the cross. And on and on we could go through the Bible and we find people who prayed. The reality is that prayer is the oxygen of God's people. They breathe prayer, or at least should breathe prayer, like they breathe breath. And sometimes in our suffering, we forget to breathe, we forget to pray. And so James comes to us and says, are you suffering? Do you find yourself in difficult straits? Then pray. In every circumstance of suffering, James encourages us to pray. No suffering is so small that it does not matter in prayer, and no uh, suffering is so large that it doesn't fit inside of prayer. Whatever our suffering is, pray. When my brother was diagnosed with cancer um, last year, he sent me this, this prayer that's based on uh, Psalm chapter 42. It's been put to music, and so it's a poem, and it's a song, but, it, but it's a prayer. So how do you deal with suffering when you're, when you're facing the, the, the potential of death with, with cancer or the potential of just continued sorrow with any other thing? Here's what this song says, this prayer says, Lord, some sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall, hear my desperation. For so long I've pled and prayed, God, come to my rescue. Even so the thorn remains, still my heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith these billows roll, God, be now my shelter. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in him who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold, cause his heart to praise you. Should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God, be then my treasure. Be my vision in the night. Be my hope and refuge. Till my faith is turned to sight, Lord, my heart will praise you. And, oh, my soul, put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing, oh, sing through the raging storm. You're still my God, my salvation. James wants prayer to be our natural instinct. He wants it to be the first thing that we resort to. He wants it to be the thing that sustains us. And he wants it to be the thing that is there at the end of that suffering and sorrow. Are you troubled? Pray. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you saddened? Pray. Has the book of James bothered you about where you are in your spiritual life? Pray. Pray. That's verse 13a. Verse 13b mirrors it in some measure, and it says this. Is anyone cheerful? 
let him sing praise. Just like we're encouraged to pray when we are suffering, we're encouraged to pray when we're happy. Songs in, in this setting, as James is laying it out, are songs of praise and gratitude, prayer and song. Life has a lot of suffering, but not all of life is suffering. Some of life is very, very good. Sometimes our hearts nearly burst with how wonderful life is. And as you reflect back across the course of your lives, surely our lives are punctuated by sorrow, but they're also exclaimed by gladness and happiness. Sometimes, in an unexpected moment, you're just overwhelmed with how good God has been to you. Sometimes it's just the simple joys of the earth, the simple joys of nature. And you look at the beauty of the, of the sun and either the sunrise or the sunset, or you look at the beauty of a flower, or you feel the refreshing breezes of the ocean, or the, you see the magnificent, magnificent views of the mountains. And in those brief moments, when you feel that you can almost taste the glories of heaven, your heart just fills up. Pray, says James. Sing a song of prayer. At other times in our lives, it can be deep feelings of love that we have for friends and family. You have a good conversation, a good laugh together, a good connection. And it makes you have a deep appreciation for the connections that you have with the people around you. And you may not be able to express your deep love for the, for the people that you love, but you know in those moments that you are happy. It is delightful. Pray, says James. Sing a song of prayer. There are still other occasions that have nothing to do with the, with the natural uh, world, and it has nothing to do with family and friends. But it may be that your heart is just overcome at the depths of God's grace. You think back and you reflect on how he has rescued you from the road that you were traveling. He pulled you up from the mud. He cleaned you up and he made you as white as snow. He gave you new clothes, a new name, a new future. And he set your foot on a solid rock and he put a new song in your heart. What do you do in those moments? Pray, says James. Sing a song of prayer. And just a little bit of reflective looking around will cause us to rejoice. And the Psalms and other places will help us learn the words of that kind of praying. So Psalm 34, sometimes we sing this. It's been put to music, but you may recognize the words here where it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, and he delivers them from all their, out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. It's a good prayer to sing, a good song to sing. Psalm 145 is very similar. This is what it says. Who is like the Lord our God? Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. And his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God who is seated on high. Who looks down on the heavens and on the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. And he lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes. With the princes of his people. Praise the Lord. Our instinct should be to pray when we're in sorrow. But it should just as much be our instinct. To sing songs of prayer when our hearts are happy. 
pray, says James. Wherever you find yourself, pray. In gladness and sorrow and happiness and suffering, pray. It should be the oxygen of our spiritual life. We move then to verse 14, which is uh, slightly different, in which it says, is any among you sick? And then it says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is, is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This is a challenging set of verses here and I just want to lay out that there are six questions that I feel like we need to answer that we'll move through rather rapidly, but you'll see them there in the verses. And so let me just give you these six questions uh, before we break them apart. The first one is, when should we call for the elders of the church? The second one is, when should we be anointed with oil? The third is, what does in the name of the Lord mean? Fourth one is, what is the prayer of faith? The fifth one, what does the Lord will raise him up mean? And sixthly, what does he will be forgiven mean? Now I'm going to take some time to address this because it has been muddled in a way that on the one hand makes us presumptuous about the way that we pray or on the other hand discourages us in our efforts to pray and our trust that God will in fact hear our prayers. So let's just walk our way through these things one at a time. The first question being, when should you call for the elders of the church to pray? As, as we're making our way through James here, it, it's, you know, are you suffering? Then you should pray. Are you happy? Then you should pray. Are you sick? And call for the elders of the church. And so why, why that shift and why that change? There isn't for us any particular description of when this should occur. Uh, we can assume a, f a few things, however. And one of those things that we can assume is that if everyone requested the elders of the church to pray for them when they had a cold, nothing else would get done. There would just, there'd just be no way. But I think that in the wording, there, there's a hint that helps us. It says, call for the elders of the church. And that would seem to indicate that a person who is ill does not have the capacity to come to the elders or come to the church. It seems to make sense that the illness is a significant one, one that has the person in, in such a situation of weakness and illness that they're restricted and, and cannot make their way to the church. And so they are to call for the elders, and the elders then are instructed to pray for the one who is sick. Just as in suffering we're to pray, and in cheerfulness we are to sing, in illness we are to pray. And in this advanced state of in illness that we find in this text, there's the complete expectation that the church will join with us in praying for our health. And that is what we did with Michael. The cancer was a significant illness. And over the course of time, he was unable to, to come to church, unable to join us. And so as a church, we, we joined together in praying with him. With him. So there's an expectation uh, that the church will join with, the, with us in praying for our health. Uh, now, this doesn't disavow the role of doctors um, in medicine. Uh, just last week, uh, we talked about the farmer who planted the seed and then he waited for the Lord to bring the, the former rains and the later rains. And it's the same way. We, 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 we go to the doctor and we, we understand that God uses medicine. 
It makes little sense not to go to the doctor, but it makes no sense not to pray about the things that are going on in our life. But the point here is that the one who is sick and weak should pray, and he or she should also ask the church to join in praying. So that's when we should call for the elders of the church. The second question then is this. Because it says to us, um, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when should you be anointed with oil? In our culture, it, this is a tough phrase to grasp because it's not our normal use of, of oil. And, and frankly, some have just have made a real mess of it and introduced confusion where there ought to be clarity. We don't need to be afraid of the phrase, but we do need to be discerning as we make our way through Scripture. And there's two different ways that the phrase is, is typically regarded falling into these, these two views. The first is that the oil is medicinal, used for medicinal purposes. In, at least in that day, it was olive oil that it's referring to, and it was certainly used for medicinal purposes at, at the time. And the theory was that along with the prayer that the elders were praying, that there would be an application of the oil medicinally in order to enable the healing process. There's another view that says, well, it's ceremonial or symbolic representation. The, the Old Testament repeatedly uses oil as a symbol when it's dedicating a priest or a king to their new role. And th so the thought here is that the oil represents a person being dedicated to the Lord, and particularly so as it regarded their weakness. In either case, the oil is used to indicate faith in what the Lord is capable of doing. What we know for certain is that the oil is not what brings the healing. Sometimes in the Bible, when people are healed, oil is used. At other times in the Bible, when people are healed, oil is not used. There is no special healing power, whether it's olive oil or not. Some people have fallen into thinking that if it's, um, that there's some kind of a mysterious healing agent if that olive oil comes from the land of Israel. But focusing on the oil misses the main point. Whatever it signifies, the verses state plainly that prayer is the point. The third question then is, what does praying in the name of the Lord mean? So this is a particular phrase that's been used in some places to, to create confusion, but it does have a significant bearing on the verses at hand. Frequently, when we pray, we'll finish out our prayer saying something like, in your name we pray, or in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We pray in the name of the Lord. Unfortunately, some well-intentioned people probably some others as well, but at least some well-intentioned people have taken this to mean that if we pray and say in Jesus' name, that it somehow adds some additional power to our prayer so that if we use the words in Jesus' name, it, it, it somehow accentuates the prayer in such a way that God is more inclined to answer that prayer. And if it is repeated multiple times, it becomes almost like an incantation, a, a mechanism that yields additional force to our praying. But that misunderstands the phrase. 
To pray in Jesus' name, we find out in other places of Scripture, is to pray according to his will. So in some circumstances, we're assured of what God's will is because we read it very particularly in his word. For instance, we can boldly pray that we will have gratitude because in 1 Thessalonians it says, be thankful and continually give thanks to God for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. There's no doubt whatsoever about that prayer. It is God's will for us to have hearts full of gratitude. But a fair amount of the time when we pray... We don't know God's design. We know very much what we want, but we don't know all that God intends. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying that we know what we are asking, but in that asking, we will yield to the will of Christ. This is my desire, Lord. But if you have other plans, I am praying in Jesus' name. The overarching desire of our request is that the will of Jesus be accomplished. And that phrase is very much like what Jesus prayed when he prayed to his father and he said, if there's some way for this cup to be passed from me, then let that happen. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So praying in the name of the Lord means praying according to, to the will of Christ. And then the next phrase, verse 15 says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What does a prayer of faith mean? I want to focus on this just a bit because sometimes people get tripped up by it. And I need to be clear that there are plenty of charlatans in the world who are helping people get tripped. These hucksters normally present the prayer of faith like this. And I know this to be true because I looked these up on a website <laughs> where they're talking about the prayer of faith in this way. First, this is how it is presented at least, you must speak something into, for it to be a prayer of faith. Like you have to verbally convey it in order for it to be a prayer of faith. Secondly, you must really believe it. Like somehow furrow your brow enough and make yourself believe it. Thirdly, you must visualize it. See yourself receiving the answer. And fourthly, you must act on it. Act as if it has already happened. And people get inside of that and they say some, some, some things that just lead people down a bad path uh, and cause them to expect something that God never promised. I don't have time to disassemble all that is wrong with this approach this morning, but I do want to point out a few important items. People who teach this assign blame to the sick if the sick are not healed. Like, I prayed for you, you didn't get better, you must not have had enough faith. And so they will say, or at least imply, if only the sick had enough faith, then they would not have to succumb to this sickness or death. If the sick truly believed, then the prayer of faith would have healed them. Well, there's two gaping issues with this one, with this. First, the prayer of faith is being prayed by the elder who is requested to pray. If it was a lack of faith, it was on the part of the person praying, not on the part of the person who was sick. So the so-called faith healers would be the ones who were deficient, not the sick. That has been used to guilt people into a lot of things, and it ought not be. So that isn't what it means. And then secondly, if the prayer of faith, as they describe it, heals everyone, 
we can simply ask, well, then why did Jesus suffer? Did Jesus lack faith when he prayed? So a simple explanation here is best. When we pray, we should ask, believing that God can heal, all the while knowing that he may choose not to. The fact that God may choose to do something else shouldn't have any bearing on my trusting that he can, in fact, heal. Now, moving on to the next phrase where it says, um, as the prayer of faith, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So what does it mean that the Lord will raise him up? I recall when I was a young man in my early 30s, I was praying along with some other elders for, a, for an elderly godly man in our church who is sick. The practice of the church that um, we were at at that point uh, was to anoint him with oil by dabbing our finger into a, a bottle of oil and then just touching it to his forehead and, and praying for him. We prayed. We were not under the illusion that the oil had any healing power. And we genuinely wanted God to heal him of his infirmities. So we gathered around him with the church and we prayed for him on Sunday morning. And Sunday night he was admitted to the hospital. It's like, what does this mean? If it says that God will raise him up and we prayed for him and now he's in the hospital, this doesn't seem to be going the right direction. I recall grappling with that. How do you resolve that in your mind? The word plainly says that God would raise him up, but that didn't occur. And you too have fervently prayed for people to be healed who were in fact not healed. Even Paul in the New Testament prayed about his own suffering and he wasn't healed. So, so what are we to make of this? What is this phrase telling us? I think it's abundantly clear, but that I think it's abundantly clear that what God often does is not what he always does. To Paul, rather than granting healing, he granted grace for the suffering. And that is why scripture is always to interpret scripture. So we take a piece of scripture and, and we lay the remainder of scripture beside it to understand what it means. And it's simply because this. When a writer is writing, he cannot say everything about the topic at the time he's addressing it. And so we take other portions of the Bible and we, we read them together to understand what they mean. The normal way that God works is to heal. And I present all of us as evidence of that. To this point, none of us here are sick to the point of dying. So over and over, God has actively been healing us. People have prayed, and so far, we've all been raised up from our sick beds. I recall that when Ross was a little guy, very young, I don't remember exactly how old he was, but I was, I was holding him on my lap one evening. He wasn't doing well. And every, every indication was that he was headed for yet another bout of strep throat. And I was heartbroken about it because it seemed like we just could not get over him I leaned over his little body and I cried out to the Lord and asked the Lord to intervene and in the morning there were no signs of illness I don't know what happened maybe I'd, if I hadn't prayed 
everything would have gone just as it did. But you will have a hard time pushing me off of the understanding of the belief that God stepped in and God chose to heal him. We've been praying for Michael. And at the outset, we did not know how that was going to turn out. And so we've prayed together. And God has chosen, once again, to step in and heal. Did he use doctors? Of course. But did God heal? Absolutely. And Michael and I talked about this just a bit. Because you, many of you have had a similar experience to mine. But I also leaned over my brother and prayed. And the Lord chose not to heal him. At least not in the way that, that I was asking. And so with Michael, it was essentially the, the same kind of illness. In, in Michael's circumstance, the Lord rose him up. In my brother's circumstance, the Lord didn't, at least on the physical side of things, raise him up. So the rest of the Bible informs us how we should understand these verses. The verse that God will raise him up is balanced with a verse that also says, it is appointed unto man once to die. Laura reminded me of this this morning as we were talking, that there will come a time when every one of us will succumb to some illness, some sickness, and that the raising up of James chapter 5 will be overcome by the truth of Hebrews that it is appointed unto man once to die. And so when we come to these verses, we have to understand they're not a formula, that if we follow it word for word, it will somehow force God to answer us in the way that we want. God can be trusted. And we are to pray, never doubting his capability. But we should also never presume on his sovereignty. We cannot force God's hand. We ask for his kindness and we ask for his goodness. But we have no leverage with which to squeeze him into our desires. It is in his name and according to his will that we pray. Next, we go to verse 15. At the end of the verse, it says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So what does it mean he will be forgiven? And particularly as it relates to this context of somebody suffering and being sick. These verses point out, on one hand, the potential of a direct connection between our sin and our health. But it's very important to understand that the verses also allow for our sickness to have nothing to do whatever with our health, I mean with our sin. It says, if he has committed sins, clearly indicates that someone who is sick may not have committed sins that led to this illness. But we should never, never assume that illness is directly, we, we should never, never assume that illness is directly connected to someone's sin. But we also shouldn't dismiss the possibility. If you'll remember, when you, we observe the Lord's Supper, you're reading there in Corinthians, and it says there's a warning that is given to us that if we treat the Lord's Supper lightly, and by extension make the crucifixion of Christ of little importance, Paul plainly says that we're in danger of sickness and even in danger of death. There can be a direct connection between health and sin. Never assume that is the fact, but never dismiss it as a possibility. 
One of the first things we ought to do when we find ourselves sick is to check, their, check our hearts. Is, is there some sin that I'm holding on to? C.S. Lewis notes that suffering is God's megaphone to, a de- to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes illness sharpens our ear, spiritual ears and makes us alert that we're harboring a sin. So illness can provide an opportunity to confess our sins. And that is one reason why faith healers are revealed as frauds. They've divorced the concept of, uh, of confession from the concept of healing. And so they like the, um, the fame or the, the, the notice that comes because someone is, quote, healed. But there's never a connection to the confession of sin. It also seems, in, at least in this passage, that's why elders are part of the process. They're charged with the spiritual care of the flock. And so praying for healing should be accompanied by asking about sin. Is there something that needs to be confessed in our spiritual lives before we pray about healing? And as you guys interact with people, that that ought to be part of the questioning process. Not assuming that there's a sin, but certainly asking if there may be one. Now, there's nothing magical about elders. Certainly, there's a pattern here, and, and they do have care for the flock. But the following verses say, in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's a shared responsibility in the life of the church. When we are praying for healing, we should also gently probe to see how the individual is doing in their spiritual life. We'll get to the end here shortly, you guys. Seems to be a little lengthy this morning. Looking at verses 16b and verse 18, I I won't read the verses to you, but the the illustration was there about Elijah, and Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it in fact did not rain, and then he prayed that it would rain, and it did in fact rain. And the point there is that prayer does change things. That's the whole point of prayer, that, that things actually change, that the things that we ask actually come true. And so you go then to chapter uh, 5, verse 19 and 20, and James concludes his letter with these two verses that encourage us to pursue those who are wandering from the truth. All through this letter, he's been informing us about the characteristics of people that should identify people who follow Jesus. His aim has been to call us back to what we've been called to be. And his anticipation is that we will actively be calling each other to what is true. So it doesn't actually use the word prayer in here, but it's not a stretch to say that we would pray for people who are straying, whether it's us or whether it's someone else. And we're to pray for two things, repentance, first thing he mentions, and then restoration, being brought back into the fold. Both are critical. So we hold out those two things to ourselves and we hold out those two, two things to others. I want to finish by just reflecting just a moment on the last part of verse 16 it should have caught our attention as we read through and it says this the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working there are too many people who misuse this verse or these verses but the tragedy of people misusing these verses is that what is actually true gets explained away as we address their error. James has no hesitation in saying that prayer 
has great power. God has established prayer as the, mean, as the means through which he does his work. And that's why prayer is so essential in the life of believers. And so you could go through the book of James and ask these questions. Are you struggling to control your tongue? God powerfully works in response to the prayers of his people. So pray. Are you struggling in showing partiality to people? God powerfully works in response to the prayers of his people. So pray. Are you burdened by the trial that you're going through? God powerfully works in response to the prayers of his people. So pray. Are you weighed down by arguing and self-ambition? God powerfully works in response to the prayers of his people. So pray. But we might be tempted as we read this verse to say that while God does answer, God works in response to the prayers of righteous people. The adjective identifies the types of people that God answers in prayer, righteous people. And James has shown us again and again that we struggle living a righteous life. But lest we despair, I want to remind us that our righteousness is in Christ. Our praying is powerful, not because we are good people, but because we have a great Savior. And when we pray, we're not leaning into our past performance. We're leaning on the righteousness of Christ who died to make us clean. And this whole book of James and the conviction that it brings is part of his, making, is part of his making us holy. So pray because God is at work. Do you struggle to believe that God will answer your prayers? Pray God is at work. Find yourself along with the guy who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That is a great prayer leaning into prayer the whole point of this section is that God works powerfully when we pray God works powerfully in response to our praying when we are suffering God works powerfully in response to our praying when we're happy God works powerfully in response to our praying when we're sick God works powerfully in response to our praying when we're wandering or pursuing those who wander pray there's some long poems in the prayer, particularly in the Psalms, where they've been laid together and structured very well, and they're acrostic poems, and they follow a certain rhyme and a certain meter, and those are good prayers to lay hold of. But there's also some desperate prayers that are good to lay hold of, like Peter when he's sinking down into the waves, and the extent of his prayer is, Lord, save me. Which of those prayers gets answered? They both do. God answers all sorts of prayer. Both are effective and both are powerful because we have a God who responds to the prayers of his people. Prayers don't have to be fancy. They have to be humble. Prayers don't have to be filled with lofty language. They have to come from broken and contrite hearts. The, Lord, the, the prayer that says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, delights the heart of God. And the God of all grace brings all of his power to bear on a prayer like that. Don't let the book of James discourage you. Let it be a catalyst of prayer so that God works powerfully in our lives. I'll leave you with this verse from 1 Peter chapter 5, a couple of verses that say this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.
I'll ask you to stand as we pray together and prepare to sing. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be a people of prayer, trusting that you do intervene and that you do make changes based on what we ask of you. Help us to understand your sovereignty and your goodness and your desire to do for us what is best. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.